So most of us are familiar with commercials, especially during the Super Bowl. And uh, what I want to do is I want to refer to a, uh, a commercial that happened in 2013. Um, it aired uh, by Mercedes-Benz, and it was advertising a car. And so the commercial went something like this. And the ad starts, and there's this 30-something guy sitting in the middle of a cafe, and he's all alone. And the waitress comes and serves him a cup of coffee. And as, he, as he's sitting there, he, he looks out the window to his left. And as he looks out to his window to his left, um, these, these two men are putting up this, this billboard sign. They're unveiling this billboard sign. And as they unveil the billboard sign, it, it's, a, it's a picture of a car, Mercedes-Benz CLA car. It's a beautiful picture of a car. And as he turns back while he's in the cafe, all of a sudden this Satan figure a guy by the name of William Defoe, is right in front of him. He just appears right in front of him. And the satanic figure says, nice car. And the man says, sure is. And the devil himself, with pointed and polished fingernails, holds a golden fountain pen in front of him. And he says temptingly to him, with a smile on his face, make a deal with me, kid, and you can have the car and everything that goes along with it. Does that sound familiar? Subtle sound of music is in the background. And as young man takes the pen, he begins to visualize himself in a series of scenes that represent all that the world has to offer. The first scene, he's in his Mercedes, and he arrives on the, the, the red carpet, and he's being honored as being a part of the red carpet. Next scene, he's in a nightclub, and he's actually dancing, and Usher is there. Usher is one of his friends. Oh, by the way, Usher is a, a singer, songwriter, so um, he's uh, uh, dancing with Usher, his friend. And in another scene, he's driving along, and he says, all of these beautiful women are just surrounding him, and he's driving along. Next scene, he is, uh, he's being taped. They're taking pictures of him to put him on the, on the cover of a trendy magazine. In the last scene, um, he's actually in his car, and he's driving past all of these other cars in a Ferrari, and he's leading a race in a Ferrari. All of these scenes are going through his head. Well, the ad turns back to the man at the table, and the tempter says to him, so what do you say, holding the pen in front of him? The young man stares down at the contract and then gazes out the window where he sees a relatively low price for the car on the Mercedes-Benz on the, on the billboard. And he says, thanks, but I think I got this. And then immediately the tempter disappears in a cloud of smoke. Now, what I find really interesting about this is the music that was playing in the background is kind of an important song. Apart from the message of temptation, the song was very, very important. It was a song by the Rolling Stones. And I want to give you the first words as I begin to listen to that. I want to give you the first words. Some of you, some of you are going to recognize it. So here are the lyrics and how it begins. Please allow me to introduce myself. Please allow me to introduce. Okay, we all got it, right? Listen to the words. I'm a man of wealth and taste. I've been around for a long, long year. Stole many a man's soul and fate. I was around when Jesus Christ had his moments of doubt and pain made blank sure that Pilate washed his hands and sealed his face. Pleased to meet you. Hope you guess my name. Oh, yeah. But what's puzzling you is the nature of my game. Can you guess his name and the nature of his game? The name is Satan, and the nature of his game is temptation. And, and in those words... Um, I've been around for a long, long time, stole many a man's soul and fate in, but what's puzzling you is the nature of my game. It's all in line with Scripture. We have this, this picture in Scripture of this satanic being, this satanic figure who comes alongside, and what's he want to do? He wants to tempt us to move away from all that good is good and holy from the Lord. The, the Bible says this in John chapter 2, the thief comes to what? To kill, rob, and destroy. That's what he comes to do. 
And, and I think this commercial and the idea of temptation and the, the words of that lyric, by the way, the name of that song, remember what the name of the song was? Symphony for the Devil. That was the name of the song by the Rolling Stones. That name of that song and this idea of temptation remind us so much of the two verses that we're going to look at this morning from the Gospel of Mark. Two simple verses. Mark has two verses on the temptation. Luke has full, a bunch of them. Matthew has an extended version of the temptation. But in the Gospel of Mark, we have two Simple verses. But these verses come after the declaration in chapter 1, verse 11, a declaration, announcement, if you will, about God and the unique position of His Son. In verse 11, it says this, You, God speaking, you are my Son whom I love, and I am well pleased. Right after that comes these two verses that we're going to look at, the temptation of Jesus. So let me just read the text, if you will. Two verses. Matthew chapter 1, verse 12 and 13 says that once the spirit sent him out into the desert and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended. Boom, that's it. That's all that we have. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you that we can look to you and trust you for who you are. And Father, now this morning, I ask that you would open our minds and our hearts to the reality and the truth of your word, the reality of who Jesus is, what he's done for us. And you would speak to our hearts and minds about this desert experience, Father. Father, thank you that we can come to you in the midst of the chaos of the world. Father, we think of all the things going on in our lives. Lord, our hearts are broken when we see the challenges of these little babies. When we look around and see the destruction of our world, we see what's happening in the Ukraine. Lord, our hearts are broken this morning. So, Father, we come to you and ask that you would reorient ourselves to who you are and your goodness and grace in our life. Father, I, I ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're familiar with the temptation, which I know most of you are, we, we read this and we realize, that, well, there's something different here. It's really short. It's only two verses, and we're missing a lot of information. We're missing the information that Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4 give us. There's no information about the three temptations, no specific information about the nature of those three temptations, and there's no information about how Jesus responded. All we, all we have here is this idea that Jesus has gone through this baptism, the, the, the voice of God has been heard, uh, the declaration of the annunciation, the announcement of, of who this Jesus is. And then immediately something happens. Immediately after the baptism, Jesus is thrust out into the uh, midst of the desert. Uh, he's out in the desert because of the Spirit of God. He's there for 40 days. He's being tempted. And then all of a sudden, we have these angels showing up. And what's interesting about the text is you have these like four statements. Spirit of God sending him out, being tempted in the desert. Uh, uh, angels come to minister to him, you, you know, 40 days. Oh, you have these four statements from, uh, from, from Mark. And what I want to do is I, I want to look at this from the idea of a desert experience. I want to look at these, uh, this text with the idea of, of a desert experience. In contrast, again, to the baptism and the announcement of who Jesus is, immediately Jesus is thrust out in the midst of the desert. And, and what I want us to see is just three things. There's chaos in the desert, there's conflict in the desert, and the last thing is there's comfort in the desert. That's what we're going to see here. So let's just begin with the desert's a dangerous place. We're going to see that in verse 12. See, I believe as Mark begins this account, what he does is he points us to a theme of hostility in the midst of the desert. There's chaos in the desert. There's danger in the desert. Go back and look at verse 3 of chapter 1. John, remember, he was the voice calling out a voice in the desert. He's in the desert experience. He's not in the city of Jerusalem. He's in this desert experience. 
In chapter 1, verse 4, it says John was baptizing in the desert. So again, we have this idea that we're being drawn to. They're drawn to what? The desert or the wilderness experience, if you will. They would understand and know about the desert and the wilderness experience. No doubt as Jewish people. Verse 13, it says this. He was in the desert for 48 days, if you will. And in chapter 1, verse 12, it says that once immediately the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And after this beautiful, wonderful declaration of, of Jesus being announced and heralded by God himself, there's, there's no celebration, there's no singing, there's no angels. Jesus doesn't even come into the forefront and begin to talk. He doesn't speak. He doesn't preach. He doesn't even do a miracle. He doesn't offer a parable. What does he do? Immediately, the Spirit of God thrusts him out into the midst of the desert experience so that he can do what? Look at the verse again. It says this. At once, immediately. Again, he uses the term immediately. The Spirit sent him out into the desert. So what I want to do is this. I want to ask the question, what can we learn about the desert? What mark... What, what might Mark be doing by drawing our attention, if you will, to the desert experience? Well, let's think about it for a minute. When's the last time you spent some time in the desert? Now, I realize some of you like to go camping in the desert, but how many times do we actually say, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go and I'm going to spend some extended period of time in the desert. Listen, I've, I've driven through a lot of desert places in my motorcycle, and you know, after about 30 minutes, you're like, okay, when is this going to end? I see, I see rocks. I see dirt. I see dust, I, I see, it's hot, I see very, very little in the, in the way of vegetation, I see all of that. Listen, if I want to go through the desert and I want to experience the desert, I want to experience the desert from the living room of my house, on the TV, or I want to experience the, the desert in, in the midst of, if you will, an air-conditioned van or a camper or something like that. I get it. Listen, when you think about the desert, you're talking about dust, you're talking about rocks, you're talking about a hard place, hot, 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 hot. In August of last year, in Yosemite, outside of Yosemite, a family lost their lives because they went out in the desert. And it's a hard place to be. And if you're not prepared, the desert is a very, very dangerous place. David even likened the desert to this. He says this. He says, the desert is a dry and weary land with no water. A lot of people stay away from the desert. And what's interesting is this, that one of the commentators talked about the desert being the devastation. That's all he likened it to. He says, it's the devastation. In other words, in some part outside of Jerusalem, as it goes down to the Dead Sea, if you will, there's this area, this place, and it's so bad. The area is so bad. The desert is so bad. He likens it simply to the desert. That's where Jesus is at. Jesus is out in the desert experiencing what God would have for him because of the Spirit of God who had impelled him. But notice what else about the, the desert experience. It's going to be a place of resistance. In other words... He's going to have to fight in the desert. If you go back and look at verse 12, it says this, it sent him out. The Spirit did what? The Spirit sent him out. In other words, when you look at this word, it has the idea of a little bit of resistance, of being thrust out into something, about being cast out. So what the Spirit of God actually is doing, it's, it's pointing people out, throwing people out. And in, in the case of Jesus, it's a thrusting him out in the idea of going into the desert where he is going to experience some kind of resistance. In his life. By the way, if you look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 43, in Jewish thought and Jewish mind, this idea of, of a demon being cast out and going through arid places, going through desert places, this idea of in the desert, uh, in the arid places, there's this demonic activity. There's no doubt that in their hearts and minds, they probably had that kind of thought going through their minds as Jesus was up. And what kind of resistance is Jesus going to experience? We don't even get to the to, to the end of the chapter, and he's experiencing 
battles, if you will. If you go to chapter 3, verse, I think it's 6, it talks about the Herodians are already what? They're gathering together to kill him. At the end of chapter 3, it says this, that Jesus' own family think he's a little bit loony, and they come to get him. They think he's off a trocker. So Jesus is in the desert. What's he doing? There's all of these forces out there, all of these resistant forces impelling him to do something, challenging his life. So Jesus is in this place of, of resistance, if you will. But notice what else he's doing. He's fasting. He's fasting. Now, I'm not going to ask you this. I'm sure many of you, many of you have fasted. I don't have a doubt that many of you have fasted. I've fasted probably the most I've ever fasted is for about three days. Had water, but nothing else three days. That was a long time. Because what happens is after the first day, what happens? Your stomach begins to remind you that you are, you are physically hungry. Your body begins to demand that you do something with food, right? I mean, you miss a meal and... And doesn't your stomach begin to growl? I mean, I miss my Big Mac at lunch, and guess what happens? I'm, I'm in trouble. And, and notice what it says. Jesus is out there, and, and he's fasting for how long? For 40 days. A picture of, of life in the wilderness, the, uh, the, the people of Israel. And we become faint. We become weak. Why is it so hard for us to fast? Because our bodies tell us that something is wrong. And when we're hungry, our stomachs are growling and they're going, something is wrong. And Jesus is out in the midst of chaos, in the midst of resistance, and he's fasting for 40 days. He's out there by himself. And one last thing in verse 13, it says this. He's with wild animals. Now, isn't that interesting? Luke doesn't mention that. Matthew doesn't mention that. But why is he out there? Why is he mentioning the wild animals? Listen, the, the desert is a bad place. It's a dangerous place. I mean, I could imagine wild animals after a week or two looking upon Jesus in this weakened state with all of this stuff going on around it and looking at this weakened Jesus as a kind of provision for a meal for them, right? Wild animals, and wouldn't we naturally think that? Listen, the desert is a dangerous place. The desert is a hard place. There's no doubt about it. And I'm sure Jewish people, when they think of the desert, when you think of the wilderness, they have to think about their heritage. They have to go back to the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 15. Notice how Moses describes the desert. It says this, God led you through that vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous stakes and scorpions. Wow. Not a picture of comfort, is it? And so Jesus is in this weakened state, if you will. He's experiencing resistance. He's fasting. There's the chaos. There's the danger. All of this and Jesus has been thrust out there by who? By the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God has led him out in this place of resistance. I say that to remind us because maybe you're in a desert experience right now. Maybe you're in the desert. God doesn't promise us that life is always going to be green pastures. God says, listen, there's times when you're going to go through the experiences of life. You're going to lose the job, and you're going to get in a relational difficulty, and you're going to have a breakdown, and maybe your body's going to break down. Maybe, maybe you're going to get that phone call from that someone saying, got bad news, your brother died. You know, we're not promised that life is always going to be easy and good. And I think what Mark is reminding us is that there are desert experiences in life. And there's chaos in the world, and we need to be mindful of We need to be ready for that. We need to understand that that is true. And maybe some of you are sitting there saying, well, you know what, life is pretty good for me. 
I'm not going through the chaos of the world. Life is really good for me. Well, you're still in the world. You're still in the desert. And in the desert, there's conflict. And that's what we see in verse 13. Jesus is impelled into the desert. And what does he experience? Verse 13 says he's, he's experiencing conflict. He was in the desert 40 days, what? Being tempted by Satan. The adversary introduced to us in the book of Genesis is returned, if you will, in Satan's name. He's a created being who lived. Remember, he lived in the very presence of God and the beauty and the wonder and the perfection of heaven. He lived in the very presence of God and the presence of all the angels and the presence of Jesus. He lived in that beautiful place until something happened. I want to be like God. I want to be like God. I want to be like God. Isaiah chapter 14, I will, I will, I will, I will, five I wills. I will ascend myself, and I want to be like the Most High. And God removed him from the very presence of all that is good. And so what we know about Satan is this. He's called the serpent. He's called the great dragon. He's called the adversary. He's called Lucifer, a liar. He's a deceiver. He's the father of lives. He's called the God of this world and the prince of this world. He's the thief who comes to kill, to rob, and destroy. He disguises himself as an angel of life to scheme in order to remove us from all that is holy, all that is perfect, all that is good. And what he does, he comes to bring ultimate chaos into our life. And sometimes he does it in a very, very subtle way. He schemes and works in ways that we cannot think or imagine. He brings conflict into our life. See, what I think Mark's real purpose here by giving us the desert experience is to remind us that Jesus is being tempted, if you will, because he sees that the temptation, this public ministry of Jesus, he sees Jesus going out in the midst of all of this to remind us of who he is as introduced to us in verse 1. In verse 1, he is what? He is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. In other words, what Mark does, Mark puts the temptation in the background, if you will, of the announcement of Jesus being the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, in the background of the audible voice of of God speaking and affirming who he is. This is my son whom I love. I am well pleased with him. Uh, Mark puts the, the, the temptation in the background of all of that to remind us that we, you and I, are in this spiritual battle. We are in this desert experience. Because if all of that is true about Satan, if all that is true about our world, the question for you and I is this, is there someone who can free us from the chaos of the world, from the temptation that we're going to? Is there someone stronger who can redeem our lives and change us and transform us on the inside? Because if there's no one to do that, then we're in trouble. And I think that's what John says, 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. Notice how John describes the world, the chaos, the desert experience of the world. Notice what he says is this. We know that we are children of God, and the whole world is what? Under the control of the evil. We look around and we see chaos all around us in the individual lives of people. People have grown up in the church. Relationships fractured. We look around and we see that so many things rebel against the very goodness and kindness and nature of God. War in the midst of Ukraine right now, and our hearts are just broken, if you will. And I think the question for the people of Mark's time and the question for us is this. Is there someone stronger? Is there someone who can come alongside of us and help us and redeem our very lives? Can someone rescue us? from the chaos of the world, from the conflict in the world, 
and redeem our very soul and give us meaning and purpose. Because if there's no one who can do that, then basically life is no. And that's why I think John focuses on the desert experience here. Desert experiences in life is chaos. The desert experience, it reminds us of this chaos and conflict. But in the midst of that, guess what? It's comfort. It's comfort. Look at verse 13. It, it talks about the, the angels of God coming and ministering to Jesus. See, most of us are familiar with this, this text, and we're familiar with it. Matthew chapter 4 says and Luke chapter 4 says. And we're familiar with the temptations of Jesus. The first temptation, if you go back and look at Matthew 4, Luke, is this. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. He's hungry. He's really hungry. He hasn't eaten 40 days. What's natural? When you've been fasting, what's the natural thing to do? Well, the natural thing to do is to get food and provide for yourself. Well, what does the tempter do? The tempter comes along and says, listen, by the way, you're hungry. I know that you're hungry. You've been fasting. Why don't you just take these stones and turn them into bread? Just turn them into bread. It's no big deal. You're hungry. You've been fasting for all the right purposes. That subtle little, hey, it's not a big deal kind of thing. Almost in, in the back, you hear the, the Genesis chapter 3 conversation with, with Adam and Eve going on. It's no big deal. No big deal to do that. Satisfy your appetite because God would want you. Second temp- temptation is, is this. Somehow, somewhere they go from the desert, they go to the pinnacle of the temple, 450 feet up, pinnacle of the temple. And Satan says, by the way, let me just quote scripture to you. Let me point you to Psalm 91. Psalm 91 says this, that if you throw yourself down, the angels of God will come around and they will bear you up. So throw yourself off of the temple. What a great way to display that you are the Messiah, that you are the king, that you are the son of God. Jump off and and the angels will come and they will bear you up. And what a great miracle to begin your Messiahship. Everyone's going to fall in love with someone who has jumped off the temple and been saved by the, the angels of God. In other words, win the approval of God. Win the approval of God. Win the approval of other people by jumping. And the last temptation is similar to the one in the Mercedes-Benz. Listen, just sign, just sign it all away to me. Worship me and I will, I will give you all these kingdoms and all of their glory. All, all I want you to do is just, just grab that golden pen, if you will, and just sign it. And this idea of it, satisfy your appetite, this idea of winning the approval of, of people in God, this idea of of ambition in life. I can, I can just go and go and find fulfillment in, in whatever I do, is, and I don't find fulfillment in, in my, the nature of God and who God is for us. And so what we have in all of these accounts in Matthew and Luke, Satan goes. At the end of the gospel, Mark, it says this, that he will come, Satan will return at the, at the opportune time. Mark chapter 14, verse 32, in conjunction with Luke talks about this. It talks about the end of Jesus' life and the hour of darkness. They call it the hour of darkness. And it's in the garden that he will be assaulted once again by this idea of Satan coming and trying to rob him from doing all that God would have him to do, all that God would want him to do, and going to the cross and offering himself as a sacrifice for sin. If you And that was an intense, intense kind of temptation, if you will. that onslaught of Jesus at the end of his life to not do what God would have him to do. But here in Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, there's never been an assault such as this because the coronation of God, God speaking about the nature, this is my son. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, Isaiah chapter 42, this annunciation by, by God himself that this is my son. He is the king. He is the Messiah. He is Jesus. He's the one who's come to offer himself as a sacrifice for all of the world. This visible voice of God is a reminder and a picture of the beauty of who he is and what he's come to do in life. 
In, in other words, if, if there's a king and a Messiah and he must reign, then he must do battle with Satan. He must come out victorious against Satan. Or if not, then you and I are in a really, really difficult place. And what we know from Matthew and we know from Luke that over and over, Jesus responded to those temptations by saying, it is written, it is written, it is written. In other words, let me take you to the book of Deuteronomy. Let me take you to God's word. In other words, in order for me, in order for you and I to combat the temptations that come into our life, we need the word of God into our life. And as Jesus is fighting that chaos, all of that resistance, all of that stuff going on in his life, all of a sudden, God shows up to comfort him. Verse 13 says, and the angels came and what? Attended to him. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 11, it says this, the devil left him and, and the angels came and attended to him. The, the idea of attended means this, they came to minister. As, as God came to Elijah and ministered and served him, God sends these angels to not just give him what he needs, but I believe to, to bring peace and comfort and a reminder that, that what God had said, what God had said in, in verse 11, you are my son, in whom I am well pleased. All of that is absolutely true as he, as he exits the temptation, if you will. Yes, you are still my son, and, and I still love you, and I am well pleased because you have come out of this temptation. You have come out, and I'm going to send you the peace. I'm going to send you comfort in the attendance of these angels. Verse 1 is very, very true. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, verse 11 is very, very true. You are my son whom I love, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus will bring the very power of God, if you will, and victory over all that is wrong in the world. In other words, to the people who are reading this gospel in, in Mark's time, Jesus will bring you calm in the midst of the chaos. Jesus will bring you calm in the midst of the conflict. Jesus will bring you calm in the midst of all that you're experiencing in life, he will bring you comfort. But before we even get out of chapter one, even though it's not written, before we even get out of chapter one, Jesus is teaching in a synagogue and he's in Capernaum. And all of a sudden there's this evil spirit. It just kind of rises up. And in chapter one, verse 24, notice what the evil spirit says, the resistance, the conflict. Beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Verse 24, it says this, what do you want to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, he knows who he is, who Jesus is. Have you come to destroy us? In other words, he knows that there is an end in sight. I know who you are, and he addresses him as this. You are the Holy One of God. Even the satanic realm knows the identity of who Jesus is. They respond to who he is. They know that they are in submission to who he is and what he would have for their lives. Jesus is the Holy One of God. And I think what Mark does is, rather than giving us all the details of the temptation, he wants to remind us this, as we go through the gospel of Mark, that I want you to see that Jesus is the Holy One of God. I want you to see that he's the Messiah. I want you to see that he's Messiah, the Son of God. And I want you to see all those things through the way that he lives and acts among people. In other words, the story of Jesus is going to be lived out in front of all of these people. And they're going to have an opportunity to respond. Do I respond to the story of Jesus or not? The demons are responding to Jesus as what the Holy One of God. Do we respond in the same way to Jesus being the Holy One of God? So what I want to do is I want to take a minute and take a pause, because this is a story. This is a story about Jesus and what he's done, but it's also a story about Jesus and how he wants to impact. So we want to give you an opportunity as we go through this. I want to give you an opportunity to hear a couple of stories. So this morning I brought uh, uh, Susan and, and Margie. Just come up, and, and I wanted you to hear Margie's story about what God has done in her life. 
All right, so we're going to take a couple of minutes and hear how God has worked and used some of the things and the way that he conquered temptation and how that applies to your life. So you experienced a time of chaos, speaking of chaos, and a desert place in your life. You graduated from high school and pursued college. You went to some summer theater in New York. You became enthralled with theater and your love of it and decided to follow your dream and move to New York. Mm -hmm. And so um, you wanted to be a Broadway actress. Sure. I mean, that's what everybody wants to do in New York. So what was that period of time like for you in terms of some of the chaotic events that maybe went on? But more importantly, what was going on in your heart? Um, I don't know how much the events were chaotic. Is that um, I probably didn't recognize it back then, but definitely there was some conflict. Um, Part of it was the conflict of not measuring up. You know, I, um, I, I graduated from college in 82 and did summer theater twice, did an, uh, an internship at a, th a successful theater for nine months, moved to New York um, four years after college. And I loved it there. I loved it. And I, when you and I talked about this, I said, I look back on my theater life. I loved that girl and I loved that time. But um, you're never as good as your friend. You're never as pretty. You're never as thin. You're never as talented. You're never as whatever as the other person who seems to be getting jobs. And that was really hard. And I, it didn't take me very long living in New York to realize that um, I wasn't as crazy about what it took to be successful as I thought it would be. It was almost like a full-time job just to get a job. So there was that conflict. And also, um, I had never lived that far away from home. It was the first year I ever missed Christmas with my family. It was awful. I cried the whole day. <laughs> no surprise, because I cry a lot. Um, but it was interesting that, you know, thinking about when we kind of come home and find our faith, um, I was much more successful in terms of getting work when I moved back to St. Louis. So um, just being away was hard. That was another conflict for me. And um, we just, um, we had so much fun, but when I look back, that was not really a very godly life at all. Yeah, you hear about New York and... and... A lot of times you hear about theater and drama and things like that, and that sometimes there are some compromises that have to be made in order to be successful. And so sometimes that becomes a challenge in, in many, many things. And we look back and go, ooh, that maybe was not the person that you were. Yeah. yeah well, yeah, that's funny that you said not the person that I was. I just, before I came up here, I saw Connor out back and I said, um, I love that you had this song redeemed because I'm the one who is in the back of church crying with that song. And um, the line that really, one of the lines that really sticks to me is, um, uh, I'm not the same. I'm not the same as I was back then. And sometimes I miss that girl, but I know that girl is not, um, is not who I was supposed to be either. So you came back to St. Louis. You um, met your husband, Bill. Mm -hmm. um, Bill, his whole story is another story we could tell, but he became um, introduced to the Keatings, who started to come to church here, went on a missions trip. So how has your life changed since meeting Bill, mm -hmm. but more importantly, meeting Christ? Um, 
Well, I've told Bill this, and I don't know that he would, I think he'd be too humble to say so, but I don't know if I would have found my way to being a Christian if it weren't for him. Um, you know, God uses the things that we don't think are, that when we look back, we think are not the best parts of our lives. He was married before me, uh, before he met me, and um, you think, oh, well, you know, you're not supposed to remarry in that case. Well, <clears throat> I, we probably wouldn't be here if, that, if we hadn't pursued being married to each other. Um, so I really think that his example, because he really led by example and not by telling, he made it clear to my parents that he was not going to ever force me to come to church with them here because leaving the Catholic Church was very hard for me. I remember um, one time here thinking, I don't want this to be walking away from something. I want it to be walking towards something, and that was hard to find. Um, but um, finding a family here um, has been really um, a comfort um, and also settled me in ways that I never knew I needed to be settled. Um, the last couple months, it's been sort of um, apparent that sometimes you look at your life and you think, I'm moving a little bit away from my earthly family and moving toward my believing family, that's really exhilarating and it's also excruciating. I, people have heard me say that before. That's hard, but boy is it great. It's conflict, but boy is it great to find yourself in a believing thing. So I don't know that I would have found my way here if it weren't. So one last question for you. Um, you know, it's easy to look at things that be kind of making a change in your life makes you say, I can't do that anymore. I sometimes think Christianity is viewed as, oh, all the rules you can't do. But really what God wants to do is to enhance your life mm -hmm. and to give you more. And so he may, 10, 10. he may ask you to change some things. But so how has your life, I mean, if you just look at it from the outside, you have Margie does skits at Christmas at Hope Church, or she was on Broadway. She, you know, so it isn't necessarily, though, it's from the outside that looks less fulfilling. But has that really been the case for you, or how has God brought about just a little bit more of what you said, that exhilaration part um, in some of the things that you do and how he has redeemed some of those things and brought you to a point of comfort? Uh, yeah, redeemed really is the word. I wasn't on Broadway, by the way. Um, but anyway. <laughs> she could have been. I wish I had been. Anyway, um, I, um, I look back on my theater life, and I... Um, I see a lot of sin, and we're the ones who find it really hard to let go of that. You know, God breaks those chains, but as humans, it's really hard for us to not hold on to some of that um, humiliation and embarrassment and um, horror at some of the things that we did in our lives. Um, and by society standards, they're not huge sins, but they are sins to the Lord. And when you look back on that, you think, I can't believe that that was the person that I was. And I never in a million years would have imagined that God would use what was the most sinful thing, if you want to say that, um, and to use it for his purpose. But that's what he does. Mm -hmm. He uses things for his purpose. Um, I'll, I'll share this real quickly. I have a, one of my girlfriends from college uh, she was an amazing actress, and I said to her one time, we were roommates for a long time, and I said to her one time, 
I wish I could cry on stage like you can. And she looked at me and she said, I wish I could laugh on stage like you can. And that was really interesting to me because she is kind of a melancholy person. But I was always very self-aware um, when I thought, oh, am I going to cry in this scene? Uh, is this going to happen? Uh, um, and now tears come to me in shows and in, in skits that we do here. And I think how odd that is when it's because God opened up something and um, because this is really real. And it's a blessing to me that he redeemed what for me is one of the things that I still work at letting go of, that sin. Um, he redeemed that and he uses it here for what he wants people to see. And I, I just, I can't believe that's what he does for us. You know, the reality of the Bible is, is that we are not the same people. And let me just take a couple of, of minutes just to wrap this up. I, I want to I just leave you here. I want to draw some application from the text, um, his story and our story. How do those two stories come together? Um, how do we survive in the desert experiences of life? And this is what I would say. First of all, life is like traveling in the desert. You will go through hard times. It could be a broken relationship. It could be a significant loss. It could be a job loss. I mean, you could be in the midst of that desert experience right now. But the good news of the Bible, the good news of the gospel of Mark, is that you don't walk alone. You and I do not walk alone. Even the psalmist said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because you are right there with us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, notice what it says here. Speaking of Jesus, it says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Notice this is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Let me just stop right there. That means this, that, that God knows. He knows exactly what you are going through at this particular point in time in your life. And he is able to sympathize. I may not know what's going on in the deep down dark recesses of your very soul. The brokenness that's there. The shame that you hide there. But Jesus does. And he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And it goes on to say this. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus was tempted in all points as a child, as an adult, in his family, in, in all of these circumstances, relationships, people. Jesus was tempted in all the ways that we are, and we can come to him. We can turn to him. We can trust him for who he is and what he's done. See, I think what, what happens is that, that Jesus takes us through the desert experiences of life, and he doesn't just leave us there. He says, listen, in the desert experiences of life, in the difficulties and the challenges of life, that is where you are going to find me, if you will. There's a, a man by the name of uh, Daniel Nguyen, or Henry Nguyen, and, and he said this. It's about leadership, but notice what he said. He says, the great illusion of leadership is to think that man can be led out of the desert by someone who has never been there. Isn't that interesting? That we can get out of the desert by our own self. But what the Bible says that I am with you in the midst of the desert. I'm right there with you. And I am able to sympathize with your weaknesses. Some of you know who Dan Allender is. He's a counselor. He said this, the desert shatters the soul's arrogance and leaves body and soul crying out in thirst and hunger. In the desert, we trust God or we die. We trust God or we die. God meets us in the midst of the desert experience. Second thing that I want to leave you with, listen, temptation is real. It is very real. 
And there's no pause and there's no off. There's no pause or off button. It is always there in, in your work relationships, in your family relationships, in your other relationships, all in your finances. It, it's, a temptation is there to compromise just a little bit of who God is and what he would have for us in our lives. It's always there. And what we do and how we respond is absolutely important. And what we can do is we can take a cue from Jesus in the temptation. We can take a cue from the Apostle Paul to recognize that we are in this struggle. You know, I find a lot of people, they're on two extremes. The one extreme over here is that we see Satan behind everything. The other extreme is way over here where we just, we just forget and we don't even think he's around. And the book of Ephesians talks about this spiritual battle that you and I are in. Ephesians chapter 2, 6, verse 12, I'm sorry, says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. A major defense of the temptations and the trials and the tribulations, the example of Jesus' prayer and the word of God. We need those things in our life. We need to be around people. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the fall armor of God so that you can stand firm against the devil's schemes. Why do we need the word of God? Because it helps us deal with temptation. Your word have I hid in my heart. Why? So that I'm sin against you. We're going to go through desert experiences. Temptation is real. All of those temptations, appetite, ambition, all of those things are real. And the last thing I want to leave you, leave you with is this. If you're human, you will fall. You will stumble. You will sin because I sin and because you sin. And the Bible is very, very clear. If we say that we're without sin, we're a liar. We don't practice that. We will sin. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. That's why he couldn't bypass the cross. He had to go to the cross to offer himself as a full payment, as a sacrifice for our sin, so that you and I can experience that full redeemed life that we just sing about. We are redeemed. Why? Because Jesus went to the cross, and all of my sin and all of that stuff is put upon Jesus at the cross. So when you and I fall in sin, we come to God and we ask for forgiveness for what we are experiencing in our life because at the cross is where we find this idea of full redemption. Colossians talks about this. At the cross, there's victory at the cross. Colossians chapter 2 talks about victory at the cross. I don't know where you're at in life. I'm going to take a minute. We're going to sing one last song and then we'll be done. I don't know where you're in life. Maybe you're in that desert experience of life. Don't forget who Jesus is. Don't forget his story. Don't forget all that he's done for us. Father, thank you for your goodness. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Father, thank you for the example of Jesus, that his story can become our story because we are redeemed because of Jesus and who he is. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.